We are in 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 15 all the way through verse 7 of chapter 2. Hear the words of the living God. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. These are the words of the Lord. As we began this letter, looking at Paul writing to Timothy, his spiritual son in the faith. We looked at this, the last of Paul's writing. And we need to remind ourselves of where Paul finds himself in this particular moment. He's at the end of his ministry run. He's at the end of his apostolic career. He is in a dungeon in Rome. He's been sentenced to death. He is awaiting his execution. And what's on his mind in this moment is his spiritual son, Timothy. We left at Ephesus so that he could establish order there. He could deal with the false teachers and those who were stirring up trouble and, and teaching a different doctrine. An enormous weight of responsibility was on Timothy's shoulder and he's writing to encourage him in the, these last moments of his life. And what else is on his mind? The church. What else is on his mind? The propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it doesn't end with him. But that it would continue to advance. And go forth. Even though it would appear by all accounts. That Christianity might have been on the eve of its extinction. So he's writing to Timothy. And he encourages him. Again as a a father to a son. He reminds Timothy of the sincere faith that he has. of, Of his own upbringing in the scripture. And how Paul was there to encourage him and and pray for him. He reminds him of his duties to the gospel. And how those duties are to be fueled by the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Which he is to defend and keep. Because the good deposit, the treasure of the gospel has been entrusted to him. So now there's a little shift in what he's writing here. And he begins to recount to Timothy... His own experience of suffering. His own experience of hardship that he finds himself at that very moment. Now he had already told Timothy that he wasn't to be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he wasn't to be ashamed of Paul, the messenger of the Lord who was in chains. Because there were others who were ashamed of Paul. 
others who were ashamed of his chains. And he tells Timothy that he must share in suffering for the gospel. He must partake of what Paul himself was experiencing. So now he recounts how many had abandoned him. In fact, you see there, he he starts there in verse 15. You're aware, Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me. What happened? Paul was arrested. And many of the believers began to think, what's going on here? Here's Paul, the apostle of the Lord. He's in chains. I don't want any part of that. So many of them probably denied their faith. They certainly denied any knowing of Paul, any allegiance to Christ or allegiance to Paul. And he names two dudes there. Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, I know there's some people who love to pick out Bible names. These aren't ones you want for your kids. All right? Because these, these two, two individuals, and we don't really know who they are, were probably the ringleaders of the desertion. Ringleaders in stirring up trouble for Paul and saying, Hey, that's, that's, how can Paul claim to be an apostle of the Lord? Look where he is. God has surely forsaken him. You can't believe anything Paul has to say to you. It would call into question uh, Paul's apostolic authority and the message of the gospel that he was proclaiming in all of Asia. Now, for sure, probably not everyone in Asia Minor forsook Paul and disavowed him. It's, It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you can imagine to Paul, that's exactly how it must have felt like. To hear of, of, of those that, whom he loved and had ministered to now just, just repudiate Paul and his ministry completely. When you read Paul's letters, you, you really begin to see the heart that Paul had for people. The heart that he had for the church of Jesus Christ. The affection of which he speaks about his ministry companions. There were so many that came alongside Paul to, to minister and travel with him. You, you read the end of the letter to the Romans there, Romans chapter 16. There's over 30 names that Paul mentions there. And some of these weren't even people that he knew personally, but, but he had heard about them. And he's, he's saying, hey, greet this individual, greet this person. Hey, don't forget this person, greet this person. And he's saying such positive and amazing things about him. He loved people. He loved his ministry companions. He loved the gospel. He loved the work that he was called to. He regularly prayed for them. He continually prayed for the churches that God would strengthen them, that they would mature and grow in the gospel because he knew the attacks that they faced. So can you imagine how he must have felt here that these people that he had ministered to, he had proclaimed the gospel to, many of them he had baptized personally, was involved in their discipleship and their, 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 their growth in the faith. These were people that were part of the churches that he had helped establish. And now a large number of them disavowed him. What a betrayal. What a betrayal. Paul, who was a man like us, human, was feeling in this particular moment. As you read this letter, you can sense that he is experiencing some some depth of loneliness. At the end of chapter 4, as he's closing this letter, letter out to Timothy, he says, hey, Demas has deserted me, one of his ministry companions. He's in love with the world. And, and he mentions uh, Cretans, another ministry partner, had left, and now he's, he's in Galatia. And, and Titus, Titus has now moved on to Dalmatia. And he says, the only one with me right now is Luke. And he's there in this dark and musty and... Uh, dungeon rotting away and awaiting 
his execution. And knowing this mass defection of believers was happening, his soul was indeed heavy and dark. But there's one bright spot he mentions here. One noteworthy exception to this mass defection was this brother called Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus. Paul writes that he was not ashamed of his chains. While all these others were ashamed of of Paul and his imprisonment and the chains and, and his arrest, here is this brother in the Lord who's not ashamed. And when he finds out that Paul is arrested, what does he do? He packs his bags and heads off to Rome in search for Paul to to, to try to locate where they were keeping Paul, Paul, where were they holding him. And he searches high and low until he finds him. And we can't even imagine what that must have been like in the first century. Most likely he was a resident of Ephesus there and he had to travel to Rome. He he had to leave his family, be separated from his family. We don't know what great sacrifices he he had to make in order to travel to Rome to find Paul, not knowing how long it would take or what he would face, what difficulties and challenges he encountered while in Rome, the great city of Rome, which he may not have ever been to before in his life, and the danger he probably found himself in. Think about this for a moment. Paul wasn't just in chains for his preaching of the gospel. In order to find himself in the dungeon that he was in, the prison there in Maritania, he would have had to have been labeled a political prisoner of Rome. Because he's a citizen of Rome. And the only way he would be executed would be for treason. As a political prisoner. And here comes Onesiphorus asking, hey, do you know where they're keeping Paul? Knocking on doors and, and asking Roman guards, hey, where's Paul? That would have presented a great and grave danger to him personally. But it doesn't stop him. He continues to to seek until he finds Paul. And he he locates him. And can you imagine as he finds out where Paul is. and, and, And he calls down from that hole in the ceiling of the dungeon. Hey Paul. It's me Onesiphorus. The great joy that must have overwhelmed the apostle in that moment. To hear this dear brother, this dear friend, this faithful and courageous brother who came all that distance to serve him and to care for him and to encourage him. Man, that's amazing. This is is an individual who did not desert Paul, but mobilized to find him. This is the one of whom Proverbs writes that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. This is the friend that loves at all time. And this brother born for adversity. A friend of Paul who loved Paul. And whom Paul loved. What a beautiful example to us, huh? Let me ask you this. Because we need people like this in our life, don't we? People who refresh us. I thank God that there are people like that in my life. Who when I see them and, or when they call me and my phone is ringing. I, I don't get that deep pit in my stomach. Like, all right, what now? You ever have those kind of individuals? Like your phone rings or a text come through and you're like, oh, God, give me grace, Jesus. But then there are those, man, who you, man, you get excited when they call you. And when you see them, right, you light up because everything about them encourages you. They refresh your soul. And this is the kind of individual that Onesiphorus was. And not only do we need people like that in our life, we need to be people like that to others. 
right? That when people see us, they get excited too. I don't ever want to be the one on the other end of that when I call you like, oh, why is he calling me? What does he want now? What now? What trouble is he in now, right? No, man, we need to be people like that and we need people like that in our lives. So what kind of example are you? Are you like Phagellus and Hermogenes who are ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of the messengers of the Lord, those who are quick to flee when obedience and boldness are required, those who shrunk back from the faith and the gospel and repudiated the apostle of the Lord, or are you a refresher of souls? Are you someone like Onesiphorus who is faithful and loyal, a servant who refreshes others? Look at the gratitude that Paul expresses here for this courageous and faithful brother and friend. He offers two prayer wishes. One for Onesiphorus' household and one for Onesiphorus himself. And it's kind of interesting how he does this, right? He, for the Lord to grant mercy to his household. But then he shifts and said, may the Lord grant mercy to him on that day. And, and the way he phrases that prayer wish leads many commentators and Bible scholars to think that, that at this point and juncture, at the time of the writing of this letter, Onesiphorus may have died while he was in Rome. They were not, they're not sure. It's just odd, the phrasing and the terminology that Paul uses here. May the Lord grant him to find mercy on that day. What's that day he's talking about? The day of the Lord, the appearing of the Lord. And so he may have, we don't know if that's true or not. Paul may just have been expressing goodwill goodwill and good wishes uh, for him and his household because he was separated from his loved ones. But nevertheless, he's overflowing with gratitude for this remarkable brother in the Lord who refreshes him. A brother not ashamed of Paul's chains. So this is an example he's presenting to Timothy because Timothy needs to be like Onesiphorus. Not ashamed of Paul and not ashamed of... Of his chains. Again it's what he already told him in verse 8 of chapter 1. Timothy do not be ashamed of me. His prisoner. Because look at Onesiphorus. When everyone else neglected me. Abandoned me. Defected. Here's this one shining light. This faithful brother in the Lord. Who came to serve me. And he reminds Timothy. Hey remember Onesiphorus. How he served The great service he rendered to us in Ephesus. This was a brother that was well known by others as a servant of the Lord. That's who we need to be like. Now the recounting of the suffering that Paul is enduring and what he is going through is an example for these next exhortations that he is going to give Timothy. Because his example is the very same example that Timothy needs to follow in. Because Timothy is going to face incredible hardships and difficulties in ministry. He is to share in suffering for the gospel just like Paul is suffering himself. This is also going to serve as an example of the hard, grinding work that Timothy has to engage in in order to guard the good deposit, the gospel that has been entrusted to him. You recall in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4.14, he tells him of that good deposit that was entrusted to him. And in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, he reminds him again. That it's by the Holy Spirit that he is to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to him. Paul writes there in verse 1 of chapter 2. You then, my child. Once again, that fatherly concern. uh, 
that, that affection from, from a father to a son is how he is entreating Timothy here. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened. Timothy, you must be strong. There is no place for weakness. Timothy cannot afford to continue to be timid, Timothy, as we talked about before. He cannot afford to be ashamed because in the midst of the shakeup of the church and the wide defection that is happening in, throughout all the churches in Asia Minor due to Paul's imprisonment, Timothy must stand his ground. He must hold fast to the word of truth. He must be strong. Again, an incredible weight of responsibility on the shoulders of this young man. With Paul in prison, again, many of the believers may have felt that Christianity was on the verge of extinction. Timothy's dealing with these false teachers, these who are stirring up trouble in the church, those who love to quarrel and those who love to argue about uh, myths and endless genealogies as we looked at in 1 Timothy. That's who Timothy has to deal with. That's what he's left with here. But here's the key. He's to be strong, but he's not to be strong in and of himself. He's not to pull himself up by his bootstraps and find some, you know, grit his teeth and and find some inner uh, strength and reserve by by exercising some positive self-talk. Come on, Timothy. You're strong. You got to look himself in the mirror every morning. You can do this, Timothy. You got this. You're strong. You're strong. It's none of that. It's none of that. Timothy is to become inwardly strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Every resource that Timothy needs for this kind of strength to endure the trials and hardships of ministry, to have the strength to share in suffering for the gospel, will come from divine grace. A grace that is in Christ Jesus. And this is why this would be good news for Timothy and why it's good news for us. This was not a grace that would be alien to Timothy. Far off from Timothy. No, Timothy already had this grace because Timothy was already in Christ Jesus. He was already in union with Christ. And the grace that is in Christ Jesus was the very grace that Timothy could avail himself in to become strong. Every believer who's in Christ Jesus has access to this never-depleting, unending source of grace. Look how John in his gospel speaks of Christ in the uh, verse 16 of chapter 1 of John's gospel. For from his fullness, we, look at that, from his fullness, we have all received what? Grace upon grace. Let me ask you this. How much fullness is there in Christ? Yeah, infinite. Unending. Right? It's an unending source of fullness in Christ Jesus himself. And in that unending fullness of Christ, we've received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The spigot of grace is thrown wide open. And all of that grace... That comes from the fullness of Christ is yours and mine. 
like the never-ending waves crashing on the shore, is the grace upon grace upon grace that laps up onto our life, brothers and sisters. We can't even fathom that. It is, it is unending grace. In James, in, in his letter, chapter 4, verse 6, he writes, But he, Christ, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There is more grace to those who acknowledge that they are not sufficient in and of themselves and humbly rely on and depend upon the grace and strength that comes from our Lord. More grace. He gives more grace. How much grace do you need? More. Every one of us needs more grace. There's not a day in our life that we can go without the grace of the Lord. There isn't a day that you and I shouldn't be pleading for more grace and availing ourselves of the more grace that is in Christ Jesus. If you look at Paul's writings, they're, they're effused with this emphasis on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in his letter to the Corinthians, in the second letter, he writes about the, 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 what he's experiencing, the, the affliction that he is walking through, and he was begging God to remove it. And the Lord speaks to him, and what does he tell? What does he tell Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. What more do you need? If I don't remove that, what more do you need? My grace is enough. And there is more grace. And it is sufficient. There is an unending supply. In his first letter, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he writes this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I love that. I love what he's saying there. He's like, I outworked all those brothers. I outworked all those that call themselves super apostles. I work harder than all of them. But he, he's acknowledging that it wasn't him, right? It wasn't in his own strength. He's saying, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of the Lord. It was the grace of God that is with me. And that's what Timothy is, needs to avail himself. How is he to strengthen himself? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The grace that is already His in Christ. How is He to do that? Well, He's to continually call to remembrance that He had Christ's grace. See, we all experience things in life. You and I walk through difficult and challenging things in life. And I know this is geared towards a minister of the gospel, to an elder of the church, to an apostolic delegate of Paul's here. But it applies to every Christian. And we walk through this life many times with a sour look on our face, overwhelmed, stressed out, discouraged maybe in our spiritual walk because maybe we're not where where we ought to be. And we forget this grace that is ours. We forget the gospel. Timothy, how is he to strengthen himself? How are we to strengthen ourselves? By continually asking for that grace and acknowledging that his sufficiency it's not that sufficiency that we need isn't coming from ourselves, but from Him. By abiding day in and day out and day by day on the enabling grace that flows from our union with Christ. It's already ours. It's already there. We're strengthened by continually remembering that the God who calls us to ministry, the God who called us to this 
walk with him, the one who saved us and purchased us and by the cost of his own blood will supply everything we need. And there's an endless supply of strength through his grace. So Timothy could know that there is nothing that would come his way as he guarded the good deposit of the gospel that was entrusted to him that he would not have the sufficient grace and strength to handle. If Timothy was going to stand his ground and endure, it would only be by the grace of God. There is an endless stream of grace, brothers and sisters, that is flowing to us from Christ right now. Right now. It's not only grace that we need for salvation. It's easy to talk about the grace that we need for salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. We know that. We need grace for every moment of our Christian walk. We don't grow in in Him without grace. We don't share in suffering for the gospel without grace. We don't overcome sin without grace. We don't stay encouraged in the Lord without grace. Grace is what gives us the capacity to accomplish all that God calls us to do. Grace is what we need to serve God and others. And all of this comes from our union with Christ. It comes from a place of resting in Christ and confidence in Christ, not in my own strength and ability. That's why Paul, again, in that portion in 2 Corinthians where the Lord speaks to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Because my strength is what? It's made effectual and powerful what? In Paul's weakness. Not in his strength. It's not in your strength and it's not in my strength. That we will be able to endure the hardships of the Christian walk. The spiritual warfare of the Christian walk. The difficulties we will face in our Christian walk. Will only be by the grace of the Lord. So what are you dealing with today? That you find yourself desperate. For strength. Discouragement. Betrayal. Broken relationships. Fatigue. Spiritual exhaustion. There is a fountain of strength. In Jesus brothers and sisters. Look for strength to endure. In Christ. We're strong in the power of the Lord. Right. And the power of his might through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Go to the gospel daily for strength. Meditate on God's word. Every time I open God's word, it is like a fountain, a hose that is turned on of grace and strength coming my way. Don't neglect it, brothers and sisters. There you will find the grace of the Lord. Verse 2. He writes, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy's going to need strength, right? He's going to need strength through grace that is his in Christ in order to stand firm in the faith, in order to guard the good deposit. And we've talked about this. One of the ways he's to guard the good deposit and keep the gospel is not just through preservation, but also through proclamation. He needs to continue to proclaim the good news, to preach the gospel. He needs to pass it on to others. That good deposit cannot remain with him, cannot stay with him. He doesn't get to hoard it and hide it away in order to preserve it truly and guard it. He must teach it to others. He must pass it on. It was absolutely essential that Timothy assume his responsibility 
to pass the good deposit intact to the next generation. Paul's about to die. The apostle of the Lord. Any moment is going to pass on into glory. False teachers had infiltrated the church. There was great disloyalty in many of those professing Christians in the churches of Asia Minor. It was absolutely imperative that Timothy pass on the faith. What was the apostle after? He was after ensuring a chain of truth that would extend beyond him. Extend throughout the centuries until the return of the Lord. Look at these four stages of gospel transmission here. This passing on of the good deposit that Paul outlines here. Okay? This, is, this is big here. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The first stage of that gospel transmission is the one that came to Paul. From Christ to Paul, the apostle of the Lord. All right? We must remember that the gospel did not originate with man. This is not Paul's gospel. And even though he at times refers to it as my gospel, he readily acknowledges where he got that from. Galatians chapter 1, he writes that he got this by direct revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why he's an apostle of the Lord, just like those who walked with Christ, who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The way we look at the apostolic teaching in the other letters of the apostles, we look at Paul's teaching and we see the one and one the same thing. The gospel came from Jesus to the apostles. This is not tradition of man. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is of divine origination. We must never forget that. And that's the first stage of transmission he talks about there. And the second stage is this. Paul to Timothy. Paul received it from Christ. And Timothy has received it from Paul. Paul is now entrusting the good deposit that was his, now on to Timothy. He told him in 1.13 to follow the pattern of the sound words that he had heard from him. And now he writes, what you have heard from me. Timothy heard the teaching, heard the words of the apostle, heard the teaching of the gospel over and over and over again. As, to, as Paul preached the gospel, as, as he sat and taught the people as he personally taught Timothy the good news here. He heard it over and over again. And look what he says that you heard from me where? In secret? No. He says in the presence of many witnesses. Why that phrase? Why that terminology? Why is that even important to reference here? Here's why it's important. Because here's one of the things that separates Christianity from cults. Who are about secret knowledge and hidden wisdom. The proclamation of the gospel was not hidden. It was public. Timothy heard the gospel in the presence of many witnesses. Many ears heard the gospel as it was preached and taught and proclaimed. But the, what the apostolic teaching is, is not some secret tradition that is passed down to only a handful of people and spiritual elites. This isn't Muhammad in, a, in some cave getting some supposed secret revelation from an angel. The moron angel. That's, that's not the name, but that's what I call it, right? Or, or how cults say, hey, this is, hey, we have some hidden thing. Even Christian cults who say, yeah, yeah, the, the Bible's good. But we also have access to this other 
divine revelation. Isn't that what the false prophets do? Send me your seed gift offering. I have a personal word from the Lord. Direct revelation from Jesus Christ for you. Or some secret, you know, never before revealed uh, truth that I've been able to. That nobody else in the history of the church has able to see. But I can see it because I have direct access to God. Those are liars and false prophets. Anyone who teaches a different gospel. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1. Let him be accursed. Because even he said, if I come proclaiming another gospel than the one I've already preached to you, which is Christ's gospel, don't listen to me. You stone me. I am accursed along with the other false prophets. Right? So this is why it's, that's why it's important here. This was public instruction. Teaching that could be verified by the many witnesses who had heard it. And, and so what does that mean? They could fact check Timothy. As Timothy began to proclaim it, they could fact check it against apostolic teaching. Because they already had it. They had already heard it. So Timothy couldn't come with some fanciful new revelation. And all those others in the church that were teaching a different doctrine, again, to those who knew it, who had heard it, they could immediately go, whoa, that does not jive with apostolic teaching. That doesn't jive with the gospel that we already heard from the apostle of the Lord. Gnosticism, which would later plague the church, that's what they claim. There was some secret knowledge that, was, uh, uh, that could be attained through private revelation to the spiritually elite. And that was something that kept cropping up in the church in the last part of the first century and on. So we have to be careful here. We already have the apostolic teaching. It's why we affirm the ancient creeds and confessions of our faith. Because it reminds us our faith is not a new novelty. The gospel is not something new. We stand in an ancient stream of all of this apostolic tradition, gospel teaching, apostolic teaching that has now come down through the ages to us. It's not something new. So when someone says, I've got something new, you go, get thee behind me, Satan. Liar, false prophet. There's nothing new. Test everything you hear. Every teaching against the word of God. That's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. That pattern of sound words, the good deposit, it's been entrusted from Christ to Paul, from Paul to Timothy, and it's been preserved by God throughout the ages and has come to us today. Isn't that remarkable? It's amazing. The third stage. It's for Christ to Paul, Paul to Timothy. Now Timothy is to entrust it to faithful men. Now Paul likely has in view here the elders, right? As he writes about the qualifications of the elders in 1 Timothy, he writes about the qualifications of the elders in Titus. And one of the qualifications is they need to be able to, what? Teach. Preach and teach. That was their responsibility, the primary responsibility. Teach and preach the good deposit. In Titus chapter 1, let's look at verse 7 and verse 9. uh, As he's writing about the qualifications of an elder. For an overseer, again, elder, overseer, is is the same thing here. As, As God's steward. An elder is what? He's God's steward. A steward doesn't own anything. The steward is to be a faithful manager of what he's been entrusted with. And in verse 9 he writes, He, an elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. 
That's important. He must hold not to his own interpretation, not to his own opinion of the trustworthy word, but as he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Elders are God's stewards. The message is not theirs, it's God's. And Paul guarded this truth with his life. And Timothy was to guard this truth with his life. And then Timothy was to entrust the good deposit to faithful men. That was the requirement. Who would also guard it with their life. Faithful men. Faithfulness is what's required. Not a charismatic individual. Not a stand-up comedian behind the pulpit. Not some powerful communicator. Faithful. Faithful men. To do what? Recognize that they're stewards of the message. It's not theirs. They're to handle it carefully. Rightly divide the word of truth as he instructs Timothy later on here. And faithfully deliver it to other faithful men. Teaching them. They must hold to sound doctrine and give instruction in sound doctrine. What do we need in the church? We need more faithful men. That this gospel can be entrusted to so that they can teach others. Now remember, we said the qualifications of elders are ones that every man should aspire to. Every man should desire to meet the qualifications of an elder. We need more faithful men. I'm always on the lookout for more faithful men. We need them. The church of Jesus Christ needs them. Those that can be poured into to be taught the good deposit here and trusted with it so that they could teach it to others, which is the fourth stage here. Faithful men who can teach and instruct others. Again, that's the responsibility of every pastor, of every elder, to faithfully transmit sound doctrine to the church so that the faith is preserved and passed on. That's how it happens. It's passed on as you're receiving it right now, as you're teaching your children, as you're instructing that to others. As you hear of the gospel and receive the gospel and learn of the gospel and learn of its truths. You take it in and now you're also entrusted with it to proclaim it to others. The next generation always has to be in view. If we keep it to ourselves, it dies with us. It dies with us. John Stott in his commentary, I love what he says here. He writes that what Paul instructs here is the true apostolic succession. It's not the papacy. This is where the Roman Catholic Church gets it all wrong. Apostolic succession is for them that the, that the papacy is, a, is, is one that can be traced back as a direct descendant of one of the apostles. That is not the succession that the apostles have in view here. Never mind they've got it all wrong. Right? You know a little bit about church history. Ain't none of these dudes right now succeeded from the apostles. Okay? What was in view here? Listen. The succession from the apostles is about the message being entrusted to faithful men who will pass it on. It's more about the message than the men who teach it. It's true succession is apostolic tradition that is passed on. Apostolic teaching, not apostolic ministry and authority. This is why there are no apostles today. Not like these guys. What they handed down is scripture. What they handed down is the word of God, right? That's what's being passed down. That is the succession in mind here in 2 Timothy 2, right here. A transmission of the apostles' doctrine handed down unchanged 
from the apostles to subsequent generations. And now, how do we have it? Right here in our New Testament. Nothing's nothing's to be added to it. Nothing's to be taken away from it. Isn't that remarkable? The faithfulness of God to preserve his word. And he preserved it. How? Faithful men practicing to Timothy too. This is, this is remarkable. Paul's letter to Timothy, written in that dark dungeon in Rome, is being taught here today in Florida. How's that for apostolic succession? Apostolic teaching being passed down. Why? Because if people were faithful to pass it down, and we need to be faithful to pass it on as well. Last year in the last part of this chapter. Now, the rest of this chapter, Paul's going to amplify this teaching ministry that Timothy has been called to. And he's going to use six metaphors, six very descriptive metaphors for the minister and ministry. Now, we're going to look at three of those today. And they're the metaphors Paul uses here in our passage. That of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Okay, they're images that Paul favored in his writings. As you read his letters, you see he's used these here before. And, and they usually highlight something uh, about the metaphor that he's using that relates to the Christian life or to ministry. So they're going to instruct Timothy on how he's to endure for the gospel. But they're also going to be depictions that instruct us in the Christian life in general. So there's application for us here as well. Let's look at the first here, the dedicated soldier. Verse 3, he writes this, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now again, this, this metaphor of the soldier, this image, is one Paul used often. Now, we don't have the same experience for us here. Now, some of you may have served uh, in the armed forces Thank you for your service. Maybe many of you know those who have served, but typically we don't walk around our community and see soldiers, right? We, we have law enforcement officials, but there weren't soldiers. Well, in the Roman Empire, there were soldiers everywhere. Roman soldiers, like in every corner. And you think about what Paul experienced and Paul's life. He was always surrounded by soldiers. He found himself imprisoned a few times. A couple of those times... They were actually protecting him because he was a citizen of Rome and had to be brought to a tribunal. In this case, there are Roman soldiers that are guarding him. They're his jailers. So he had ample opportunity to observe Roman soldiers and draw these parallels to the Christian life and ministry that he is now using to instruct followers of Jesus Christ. So let's look at this dedicated soldier. All right, what is it? Well, largely, he uses this imagery to remind us that the spiritual life, the Christian life, is a life of warfare. I don't know if you know that or not. It's warfare. Continual, ongoing, never-ending warfare in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ. We are at war. We're at war with the world. We're at war against our own flesh. And we're at war against the devil. One of the most vivid pictures we get of this is in the sixth chapter of his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 13. He writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It's a magnificent passage, an encouraging passage for us who face the daily warfare in the Christian life. But look how he writes there. It's the very same thing he's telling to Timothy, says to Timothy. Be strong. Be strong, not in yourself. Be strong in the Lord and his might. Because we have real enemies. The enemies of the cross. The enemies of every follower of Jesus Christ. The opponents of Christ himself. They're spiritual forces of wickedness and darkness and evil. That is who we are up against. These unseen forces that if if our spiritual eyes could truly be opened to see, we would see the warfare all around us. But we know it's there. We sense it by the Spirit of the Lord. We experience it. We know its presence there. So like a Roman soldier... Is equipped with armor, offensive weapons, defensive armaments. The Christian, likewise, needs to be equipped with those same things. To do what? To stand firm. To hold back the enemy. To withstand in the day of evil and the attacks, the spiritual attacks that one experiences. And he calls that the armor of God. These aren't real things. I know some of you have been taught, well, let me put on the helmet of salvation These are not physical things you put on. Every piece of this armor is the Lord Jesus Christ. Every piece of that armor speaks to the work of Jesus Christ for every single believer. Righteousness, salvation, the faith that we have been given to quench every fiery dart of the enemy. What does that tell us? Where's our faith in? Our faith is not a thing. Our faith is not ourself. Our faith is not in our faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. The sword of the Spirit. Wielding the sword of the It's not a physical sword. It's the Word of God, which we need to know. These are the very things we equip ourselves with to stand firm. So that's why we need to know God's Word. And we need to know the Gospel and appropriate the Gospel to our life. To stand against temptation and against the attacks of the enemy. So he writes to him here, share in suffering. Notice again the great theme of suffering. Timothy, you're going to suffer. Christian, you're going to suffer. If you're going to be faithful to Jesus and to his gospel, embrace it. We're going to suffer. Ministry's hard. The Christian life is hard. Suffer as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. He's going to experience hardship. He's going to experience suffering and risk because they're par for the course in ministry. You're not doing ministry if there's no hardship. Ministry is not a life of comfort and ease. Just like soldiers on active duty should not expect a safe or easy time on deployment, the gospel minister and Christians in general should not expect A life of ease and safety and comfort. No. 
I don't care what Kenneth Copeland told you or Joel Osteen or any other charlatan. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's saying share in suffering. That's a good soldier. Because a good soldier recognizes what he signed up for. Ask a soldier their accommodations. They ain't living in the lap of luxury, are they? When they're sent on deployment overseas, they're being fired upon. They're living in the enemy's backyard. At any moment, they need to be at the ready for what's coming their way. It's not a life of ease and safety and comfort. Why should we expect the Christian life in that spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in to be one of ease and safety and comfort? It's not. It's not at all. Our fidelity to Christ and his gospel means we will experience opposition and ridicule and mockery and persecution and even suffering. And then Paul reminds us that just like a soldier on active duty does not get entangled in civilian affairs because he frees himself from those things to dedicate himself to being a soldier and following commands in order to what? Satisfy his superior officers. Timothy must not allow himself to get entangled in worldly affairs, civilian affairs, anything that would hinder him from fighting the good fight of the faith and engaging in the good warfare that he's been called to. You've noticed, if you see someone that's enlisted in the armed forces, if they're on active duty, they have to wear their uniform everywhere they go. If they're in public, they got to look the part, don't they? They can't get entangled in civilian affairs. They must be differentiated. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. We're not to get entangled in worldly affairs. Now, does that mean we don't engage in the duties that we have and responsibilities in the world? To our family, to our job? No, of course it doesn't mean those things. But the reality is there are good things that we engage in that actually hinder us from the main things. Hinder us from the spiritual priorities that we should be called to. One I see greatly in the church here in the West, right, in our country, is the, is the amount of, of, of uh, kids' sports that take place on Sundays that hinder families from actually coming together and worshiping the Lord. And what do some families do? They prioritize that over the spiritual things, the weightier matters, the things of eternal significance for something that's momentary and fleeting. And actually those things become a spiritual act of worship in and of themselves. So they become idolatry. Is sports evil? No. Is playing soccer evil? No, it probably should be. But, but it's not. It's just too much running. <laughs> that's, like, that's the game of endurance, isn't it? No, sports are not evil. Playing sports aren't evil. In their right place. But when they hinder... Right, The main things, when good things become God things, they become idols. When they hinder us from actually engaging the spiritual activities and things that actually benefit us spiritually, are about the kingdom of God and are things of eternal significance, that's what's in view here. So the minister of the, of the gospel isn't to get entangled in things that's going to hinder him from what God has called him to do. And the Christian should not as well. Okay, Timothy's got to devote himself fully to Christ. He's got to devote himself fully to the teaching. He's got to devote himself fully to the flock, right? Every pastor today, that's the same responsibility, okay? 
But for every Christian, you're a soldier of Christ also. Not just a pastor. All of you are. We have to commit ourselves to a life of discipline and suffering for Christ and his gospel and avoid whatever may entangle us and distract us from our allegiance to Christ and living a life that pleases him. Isn't that the chief aim of our life? To please God. Not to gratify ourselves. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been purchased at the cost of his own blood. As he sacrificed himself for you. Christ is our commanding officer. We should live our lives every moment in recognition of that. Awaiting his commands. Obedient to his commands. Because our desire is to please him. And no one else. The minister of the gospel needs to remember that. And every follower of Jesus needs to remember that. That's our chief aim. To please him. The second metaphor is that of the disciplined athlete. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, he's borrowing imagery here from the, uh, the competitive games, the Olympic games there in the Greco-Roman world. And these ancient games required that anyone who was to compete in these games needed to complete an extended training period. It was like nine or ten months of training. They would, that's what they would devote themselves to. To all day. And before they could compete in the games, they had to swear in oath that they had completed that training. Those were the rules. They had to follow those rules. If they didn't complete the training, they were not qualified to enter into these games themselves. Now, every sport has rules, every sport requires training. You are not going to engage in competitive sports without training. Otherwise, you'd be like that. I don't know if you saw in the news a couple weeks ago that runner. From that one nation that was put in, in the 100 meter dash, or it was the 200 meter race, and she finished like 10 seconds behind. It was obvious this person had not trained for this race. And it was uh, the, the sporting director of that nation actually put one of their relatives in that slot to run. But it was clearly obvious she was not into competitive racing. All right? She was like jogging, you know, and she was kind of overweight, not like the other runners there. Okay? She should not have been qualified. Well, these, for, to, to compete here, had to. Now, every sport, again, has rules, requires training. There's sweat. There's discipline. There is rigor involved. And competitive sports also have a prize. There's usually a championship game, a championship match. There's money that's awarded, right? There's, there's trophies and all these things, right? And the Olympic Games had that as well. Those who won in the games would be awarded an evergreen Wreath as the winner. But no athlete would be crowned who did not compete according to the rules. No athlete would be crowned if they were caught cheating or, or caught engaging in unfair tactics to get an advantage, right? Like today, performance enhancing drugs, right? Would disqualify someone from competition, right? In the same way, those who cheated there would not be qualified. They'd be disqualified and would not win a prize, even if they crossed the finish line first. To be a winner, you must play by the rules and you must train in order to compete. There's no shortcuts. Timothy must play by the rules in his duties as a minister. He must keep and obey God's rules himself. Again, what he's been entrusted with is not his. It's, it's the good deposit. 
He needs to be faithful to guard it, to keep it, and to preach, proclaim that, and teach that to others, to pass it on. He must persevere himself in the faith. He must stand firm in the truth. He must be faithful to do all that God called him to do. You recall in chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 Timothy, he told him he needs to train for godliness. He needs to discipline himself for a godly life. That means, Timothy, guess what? There are things you're going to do without. In your allegiance and devotion and followership of Christ, you need to discipline yourself to obedience and to godliness. It's the same for every Christian. We're under obligation to Christ. We're under obligation to obey our Lord. He is our Lord and Master. To obey God's moral laws. Now remember, this is not about rule keeping. We emphasize this just about every time, isn't it? You're not saved by works. You're not kept by works. There's no rule keeping here to earn salvation. That's not how the gospel works. However, the saved person who has the Spirit of God is going to desire to obey Him is going to desire godly things, is going to desire a life of holiness, a life that pleases the Lord. Like an athlete who trains and competes in order to win, playing by the rules, every Christian should desire to walk in godliness in accordance to God's will and God's word. Because our lives are are to be governed by the word of God, aren't they? Yes, by God's moral law. The Ten Commandments... Christ has fulfilled them completely in our place, has he not? We still have an obligation to them. Because his law is a reflection of his character and who he is and his holiness. So we obey. We desire to obey. There are some who call themselves Christians and have their own set of rules that they live by. Yeah, I know God's word says this, but I I got a different take on this. I encounter that every time someone posts something that is any way remotely controversial. It shouldn't be, especially if it lines up with God's word. And now you have this whole host of commentary from others who have their own hot take on what God's word actually says. Well, that's not actually what Paul... I was just reading about this yesterday. I don't know if you know who Vody Bauckham is, um, but he's a great minister of the Lord. And uh, he appeared on a conservative... um, uh, hosts show and he was they were talking about the tv sh- show the chosen you might be familiar with that and he was talking about how he doesn't watch it nor does he believe christians should watch it because he believes it's a violation of the second commandment and i listened to a lot of what he said regarding that and i'm i, I would agree wholeheartedly with it with how he communicated and what he said uh regarding the show but you should hear you should read the commentary from others uh about that Oh, he doesn't, he doesn't understand the Bible. He doesn't, and it, it became quickly apparent to me that most Christians do not even know what the second commandment says. And why he would make that assertion that it is a violation of the second commandment. You're portraying an image of God in the character, in the figure who is playing Christ. Okay? It's, it's a reason why the reformers railed against the, the depictions of Christ, you know, in, in iconography and the depictions of Christ in paintings. Why? When you think of Christ, when you pray, what image comes to your mind? 
There's a lot of people who pray right now, and the image of Christ for them is the actor who's playing Christ in that show. For better or worse, that's just how we are. We're worshipers, and we worship. We were made unceasing worshipers. We're prone to idolatry. And that's the kind of stuff that ends up happening. So my point is, it's, it's evident that people have their own rules about what they think God's word has to say. That's not playing by the rules. That's a way to disqualify yourself. Right? Even Paul himself, when he, he likens the Christian life to a race, look what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. If you have more questions about that later, afterwards, I'd be glad to uh, answer those. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Christian life is a race. Everyone's running. The whole world's running. The question is, what are you running towards? What's your finish line? What's the prize you're hoping to get when you cross the finish line? Well, we know for many in the world, it's, it's fortune, it's fame, it's material possessions. It's, it's being highly esteemed by others in the world, having status and a great reputation, all these other things that are worthless pursuits. That's a perishable crown. Not the believer, not the Christian. The race we run, and, and we're diligent in running, is to obtain an imperishable prize. The unfading crown of glory that Paul writes about in 2 Timothy chapter 4. That's what we run for. We train and sweat for that which is eternal. So he writes in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is there laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. We run the race faithful to God in a manner worthy of Christ and his gospel to obtain what? The imperishable prize, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to all. And I've shared this before. I've said this already. Christ has already won the race for us. Christ crossed the finish line for us. So we run the race now, faithfully, with diligence, sweat, blood, sweat, and tears, because the Christian life is a life of warfare. It's a life of hardship, not ease, but we do it in the grace and strength of the Lord. But Christ has guaranteed that we'll cross that finish line for us. Because He crossed it already. So we rest in the finished work of Christ. That's what we mean by that. I'm not going to finish the race in my own strength. I'm not going to earn the prize because I was a good boy for Jesus. And you were a good girl for Jesus. No. He won it for us. Last metaphor, the diligent farmer. This one's pretty self-explanatory, right? It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Just like soldiers and athletes, farmers cannot take any shortcuts either. I've never done farming, I will confess. I know I look like a farmer, don't I? 
I have never farmed a day in my life. And most of you probably have not either. Raise your hand if you grew up on a farm and no farming. One person. See? We're not, this metaphor is a tough one for us because we think of farming as like they're in these big old tractors with air conditioned and it's all computerized harvesters. That's not the farming in the first century, okay? <clears throat> it's hard work. They're up early. They work long hours. It's a life of constant toil and plowing and sowing and tending and weeding and reaping and storing. They would face regular disappointments because they're waiting and, and nothing comes up. They have to deal with frost and pests and diseases. They would need great patience in order to see the fruit of their labor. Hard work is indispensable to farming. You need both sweat and skill. That is required in order to produce from the ground. The farming life is also not glamorous. They don't make the covers of Time magazine. The man of the year is the farmer. Right? Cover of Sports Illustrated. It's not the farmer or Business Weekly or anything else. It's also a pretty boring life, I would imagine, as well. It's hard work, but not much entertainment unless you are entertained by produce. Okay? The farmer can't afford to be lazy. The farmer that's lazy, neat. his family doesn't make it, right? Paul uses this analogy to illustrate the hard work of spiritual ministry. Timothy, like farming, like the farmer, it's going to require strain and struggle, hard work, diligence. You cannot be lazy. It's not glamorous. You're not going to get a lot of uh, applause. It's hard work. And it's going to require a lot of patience to see a harvest. But on the bright side, guess what the farmer gets to do? He gets to be the first to taste of the fruit of his labor. He gets his share first of the crop. For the minister, there is a tremendous blessing involved in watching people grow in their faith. Grow in their knowledge of the gospel. Grow in holiness. Grow in their sanctification. You know, it's, it's, it's rewarding to see people come to faith in Christ, see the work flourish. But in the Christian life, like in ministry, there are great blessings. But we have to do the hard work of sowing spiritually in order to reap spiritually. Galatians chapter 6, a passage that's often used about when you take up an offering, right? Do, be, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. But Paul's not talking about uh, collect the, the collection, right? Or passing the offering plate here. Look what he writes in verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap what? Corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good, of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's a lot of parallels there, right, to the hard work and the diligence of the farmer in view here. We need the diligence of the farmer to sow spiritually in life in order that then we would reap a spiritual harvest. What is that harvest? It's a lot of things. It's our, again, growth in godliness, our growth in, in holiness, 
right? Growing in our relationship with the Lord. Growing in our walk with the Spirit of God. It's also a harvest of souls as we proclaim the gospel, right? We must not grow weary in doing good. We need to have patience to do good, to serve one another, to love one another, to do all of the one another's that God's word enjoins us to. Being faithful to God in prayer and study of his word and proclaiming the good news all by the power of God and through the grace of our Lord. And in doing so, like the farmer, we get to reap a harvest and from the spirit eternal life. So he concludes these three examples with this saying in verse 7. Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over these things, saint of God. Consider them carefully. Pray over them. Reflect on them in your time of study. We're soldiers. We're soldiers living to please God, please Christ, our commanding officer. We're soldiers who are not going to get entangled in the things that are going to hinder us from our single-minded devotion to Christ Jesus. We're also like athletes. We're running the race. We're running the race by the rules, according to the Word of God. And we're running the race to attain the imperishable crown of righteousness that is laid up for us. And we're like farmers. Toiling hard and sweating for eternal things. And in so doing, we will get to share in the harvest. Christian life is hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. You will face disappointment. You will face times of discouragement. You will experience exceedingly difficult things in this life. And if the Lord tarries we will taste in our share of suffering in a way you and I have not imagined. And the Christian life is all of those things, but beyond all of that, the Christian life is glorious. It is glorious because Christ is glorious. As you consider these things, may the Lord give you understanding in everything, and may you be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus.